please stand. And the Bible reading for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians. We're starting a new chapter. Uh, This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Sovereign God, please send your Holy Spirit upon all of us. Pry open all of our cold hearts and give us grace that we might hear your word, Father. Believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I was very close to my mother, Jeannie. Uh, She died back in 2008. Uh, It was one of those... Um, moments in life that I will never forget. I was at her bedside when she died. It, it meant a lot to me and my brother to be there. I'd had a conversation with her a few months earlier uh, before she died. Uh, I don't know, maybe six months or so before uh, she passed away. My my phone uh, rang one day and I was able to take the call. It was my mom calling uh, from Mississippi where she lived. And uh, she wanted to talk about her salvation. And that's an interesting conversation for a son to have with his mother. Uh, as I said, I was close to her. I loved her. I looked up to her. She is one of my heroes. Uh, she sacrificed uh, almost really her whole life uh, for me and my brother. Uh, she worked so hard to put us through college and support us and help us. And I... Uh, loved and loved her very much, and she wanted to talk about her salvation. And we started talking, and she was talking about some of the mistakes she'd made in life, 
and she thought she'd really made a lot of mistakes in life, and um, I couldn't argue with her. There were things in her life that I wish she had done differently, um, but uh, she went on about these different things that she had done and how re- remorseful she was, and that she was afraid she was not going to experience salvation. And she had been taught at one time that uh, you have to live a really good life. You have to, you have to go to church. You have to uh, give. You have to be a uh, person who is morally upright in every way. And if you don't live up to those standards, then your salvation is at best in question. And at worst, it's evidence that you are not saved. And so she was wrestling with this. Uh, with tears, and I was wrestling with her in tears as she tried to think her way through this, and I said, Mother, you don't have to earn your salvation, and she stopped. She said, don't say that. I've I've spent my, my whole life trying to earn my salvation, and uh I just, my heart just wept for her uh, that she thought that and that she was wrestling with that. And I, I tried as best I could to point her towards some Bible verses that made it very plain, like this one, that we don't earn our salvation. It's not on the basis of something we do that we're saved. It's on the basis of something infinitely more important, more precious. And we had this difficult conversation and I told her I loved her and we hung up the phone and it was it was I told Leslie about it It was it was one of the saddest conversations I had with my mom uh, that broke my heart really Uh, partly because I thought here I am a pastor who preaches grace all the time and, and my own mother whom I love with all my heart is so in the dark about it Well, um, a lot of people are in the dark about salvation. A lot of people are in the dark about uh, what it is that saves us. And that's actually the backdrop to what Paul is writing about here in Philippians chapter 3. I want to come back to the story of my mother, but for a minute I want to talk about the story Paul tells us. It's uh, it's a, it's a kind of story, it doesn't read like, exactly like a story, but he's telling us about words he has to say to this church, verse 1, that he loves. They are his brothers and sisters in, in, in uh, Philippi. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord, and he says that what he's about to write uh, is no trouble to him, and it's safe for them. It's, it's a word of safety. This is an important word of safety for the church in Philippi. And I want to tell you, it's an important word of safety for us. It's important for us to be clear on some things. If we're to rejoice in the Lord the way Paul tells us to, if we're actually to know what the Christian life is all about, it will be safe for us to know some important things that Paul is going to talk to us about. Um, I want you to skip down to verse 8. I'm going to Go back to verses 1 to 7. But verse 8, Paul describes what it is that saves us. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul is writing these words to his brothers and sisters in Christ, words of safety. And it, in this passage, it, it boils down to this idea of understanding the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The surpassing worth, the supreme worth, the ultimate worth of knowing Christ. Paul say, sees that as the basis for the rejoicing in his life. He sees that as the basis for perseverance through the, the hardships, the, the suffering that he's experienced. Uh, he understands that all of that finds ultimate meaning in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Uh, the surpassing worth. There is nothing more precious than knowing Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we have a prayer list that we pray through. I've mentioned that a couple of times. And, and we regularly pray for people who are sick. James prayed this morning for people who are looking for work. Absolutely right that we should pray for those things. But you can be very healthy. You can have a great job. You can be fabulously wealthy. But if you don't know Jesus, then you don't have anything ultimately. It's all, it'll all pass away. It's, it's fleeting. Paul understood the surpassing worth of this one thing, knowing Christ Jesus. If there's one thing I aim to do here at MetroCrest, if there's one thing the elders of our church and the deacons of our church and the uh, team leaders and Bible study leaders of our church aim to do, it's to help people know Christ. You know, uh, we have a motto here at MetroCrest, um, discovering the love of God and sharing it with others. That's, those are just slightly different words to describe what Paul is describing. Uh, discovering the love of God, discovering the surpassing worth of God in Christ. Jesus, who came into the world to live as one of us, to teach us, to show us the kingdom, to suffer and ultimately to die for us so that we might discover in him God's great love. There is surpassing worth in that. It's the most important thing that I or anyone can tell you about. It's the surpassing love of Jesus. God's love poured out on us through him. It's, he says in verse 9 about being found in him. To know Christ, to discover the love of God in Christ, is to be found in him. And it means that as we're a part of his family, part of his life, we are now found in the life of the sinless one. We're now part of his redeemed family, the covenant people, in him. And he says, 
continuing, that means not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the status of one who knows Jesus. That's the supreme worth of being in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from obedience to the law, the things we do, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God. And he says it depends on faith. It's important to get this straight. He's not saying that our salvation, this surpassing worth, uh, depends on the measure of our faith. Uh, If it were dependent on the measure of my faith, it would be a kind of works righteousness, and I would be no better off than if my faith depended on, if my salvation depended on any other work I do. Uh, My faith is pretty paltry and pretty weak. I have moments of extreme weakness. If my salvation or your salvation depended on the measure of our faith, well, we, we, we would be no better off because our faith is so imperfect and we are so weak. I have good days, but I have a lot of bad days. One bad day, one day of imperfect faith, if, if your salvation depends on your faith, well, it's hopeless. There's no real hope there. But it's not dependent on the measure of our faith. It's dependent on the power of the one in whom we put our faith. So a little faith in a perfect, awesome, loving God is, that's all it takes. A a little tiny bit of faith in this awesome God who in Christ has shown himself to be faithful. And interestingly, it's, it's His gift to us. It's, it's Him working in us, as Paul's already said back in Philippians chapter 2. He's working in us. The, the, the little bit of faith we have is actually His gift. And so Paul says that ultimately, his great hope is in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and having faith in Christ. Because Christ is so perfectly trustworthy and so perfectly capable of doing what he has promised to do. And so Paul can say in the midst of his suffering, rejoice, rejoice, put your hope in the one who has the power to save. He talks about the power of his resurrection in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I mean, the the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead in the glorious resurrection, that first Easter, that same power which raised Jesus from the dead raises us from the dead, gives us life in Jesus, gives us hope and faith in Jesus. And so Paul says, rejoice. It's been the theme of this morning's verse, of this morning's service. To whom shall we go? That first song we sang right after uh, David introduced the theme verse, the theme of our worship says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. 
It's Christ when we are weak, even in the midst of our imperfect faith, that, that He is strong and He holds us fast, as Paul will say again and again and again in all of his letters. It was at the center of his teaching that we are saved through the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, he throws out several worthless alternatives in verses 1 to 7. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, we, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These worthless alternatives are centered in the flesh. They're centered in the things we do. Uh, circumcision, as the... Uh, party here in Philippi taught was about something that the believer had to do. They were, they were saved by complying with this religious regulation. It's part of the story Paul is telling here in Philippians. There were those who seemed to follow Paul wherever he went who would come in and say, yes, Paul is great so far as he goes, but what you've now got to do is you've got to take on this Jewish ceremonial Uh, If you're a male, you must be circumcised. You must become like a Jew. You must comply with the Jewish law. Well, Paul actually calls that evil doing. He calls that um, uh, mutilating the flesh. It's, It's taking something that doesn't apply to us in the same way, twisting it, distorting it, and forcing it on people and saying that's where your salvation comes from. It's something you do. It's interesting, they they came into the church after Paul had taught grace, they came in and taught works. We sometimes think of it the other way around. We think of that grace comes in and and, uh, eliminates an idea of religion by works. But in Paul's experience, it was sometimes the other way around. He would come in and preach grace, people would respond to the gospel of grace, and then over time, subtly perhaps, be lured into a way of thinking about salvation in terms of their works, the things they did, the religious observances they did, the compliance with the law that they were encouraged to have. It's interesting that you can be saved by grace and then, if you're not careful, stumble your way into salvation by works. I imagine the people who taught my mother what they taught her at one time had some idea of grace But they had wandered into this idea that they, now having been saved by works, they must save themselves by works. By having been saved by faith, they now must save themselves by works. And I know far too many Christians who get confused on this. We we understand we're saved by grace, but we start thinking, yes, but... I've got to do this religious thing. I've got to do this moral thing. I've got to comply with all these things in order to earn my salvation. Well, Paul had very strong words for all that kind of thinking. He he talks about it being something involving dogs, evildoers, mutilation. He calls it um, the flesh. That is that which is fading away, that which is impermanent. And he actually calls it not only worthless, uh, loss. Some translations have worthless in place of the word loss, uh, worthlessness. But he also calls it rubbish. And that's a very, very interesting translation of a really earthy word. 
when Paul said it was rubbish, he meant it. He meant it is excrement. It is worthless, totally useless. All of that kind of thinking that people had brought into the church, that is useless, it is worthless. All these alternatives. He, he, he rattles off an interesting list of alternatives. He talks about the, the Jewish uh, uh, ethnicity that he had. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a, uh, a Jew of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the pedigree that you needed to have. He had it. Uh, he had also been circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Uh, so he'd been a part of the covenant people from the very beginning of his life. Just a little boy, he had been a part of the covenant community. He also complied with the law like a Pharisee. The Pharisees kept detailed uh, lists of the kinds of things you had to do. Well, he did them. He was zealous to the point that he actually persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, he said he was blameless. That is to say, he complied with all the pharisaical rules, all the regulations. He kept it all. But in verse 7, he came to realize that whatever gain he had had, he now counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. All of those other things are absolutely worthless in the end. All those other things as a means of salvation are absolutely worthless. Now, Paul's going to go on later in this very chapter to talk about the importance of living a life worthy of the gospel. We've seen that already a couple of times in Philippians. But he makes it very plain that as a means of salvation, those things are worthless to us. And actually, actually, truly coming to understand the gospel will mean to reject those things as a means of salvation. It, may, it will mean, is in terms of salvation, to look at them as rubbish. They don't count in terms of salvation. No, they're worthless and they have no place in our understanding of salvation. And it's very important, according to Paul, that we get this straight. We'll be confused. We'll be misled. We will be unsafe if we're not clear on where we look for our hope, where we look for our salvation. I want everybody here at Metrocrest to be so clear on this. Uh, we're talking to people about membership now. We're right in the process of talking to people about coming to Metrocrest. And we talk about the gospel. We talk about discovering the love of God. Well, I want everybody at Metrocrest to be very clear that our hope is found ultimately in what Jesus Christ has done. That's what you will hear me teach and preach. That's what you will hear from this pulpit. That's what you will hear from all of our teaching ministry here at our church. That's what we'll be teaching in our Bible studies and in our Sunday school. We find our hope and our confidence in Christ. Sadly, that is not always the case. I just want to read a, a very brief quotation from a friend of mine who wrote a book, John Yates, a friend of Leslie and mine, wrote a book about this very topic. And this is what John Yates had to say. Every Sunday in countless churches around the globe, the minister enters the pulpit and nags the congregation to do better for God. Progressive preachers will want their congregations to try harder at protecting the environment, 
fighting racism and working toward economic equality. Conservative preachers will want their congregations to work harder at being godly, including taking practical steps to draw closer to God and serving their neighbors. Of course, all of these themes are explicitly commended in Scripture. Yet these preachers are putting the cart before the horse. They emphasize what we should do to please God, not what God has promised to be pleased to do for us. Telling people what they should do does not empower them to do it. We want to be a church that is focused on discovering the authentic love of God Almighty in His Son. That is where we see His love made flesh. God's love actually entered the material, entered that which is passing away. He came into this world, took our flesh upon Himself so that we might have His immortal mercy. His life becomes our life. We are now in Him. Uh, I want to close just by finishing the story of my mother. Um, I did have that painful conversation with her. I'll never forget it. But I'm happy to let you know there was a second part of that conversation. And it came in the middle of the night, just uh, a couple of weeks before she died. Uh, My phone rang. It was like one or two in the morning. And uh, I answered the phone. I could see it was my mom this time. And I answered the phone. And she told me she'd been up all night. And she said, I just wanted to call and tell you that I was reading in the book of Romans one of the verses you mentioned that I'd rattled off to her. And she said, I just want you to know that it just hit me that I don't earn my salvation, that Jesus gives me salvation. And now I trust him. I put my hope in him. I'm hanging on to Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that phone call in the middle of the night to know that the Holy Spirit had been doing what I couldn't do opening my precious mother's eyes to the beauty, the power of the gospel, which is that we cannot, we never will earn our salvation, but Jesus has secured our salvation for us. And now all we do is respond to him as he moves us to respond to him. We look to him now as the source of our salvation. That's the most important thing I will ever say to you from this pulpit is that our hope, our confidence is found in the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus.